to. Let's pray before we open God's word together here. Father, we pray that you would grant us your grace this morning. We are in need of you condescending to reach below, to refresh our souls, to refresh our hearts, give life where maybe there is only death, to give warmth where we have grown cold. So we pray that you would meet with us this morning as you promised to do, and that in your exceeding abundant kindness, you would speak to us as your children. We pray all this in the strong name of Christ, amen. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, in the midst of a congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Though the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. The writer of Hebrews, we've seen as we've been walking through this book, has talked about the fact that all things were created out of nothing by the sovereign creator, and specifically for Christ and through Christ, the Son of God. He echoes that again here at the very beginning of our passage, where he says in that first verse, verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. He's the creator. All things from him and through him and to him, as Paul will say in Romans 11. But then he launches into this idea of a suffering Savior in our text, which I think for many over the years in the history of Christendom, this has been a great struggle. How do you put these two things together? How could one for whom and by whom all things exist, also suffer and die at the hands of those things. Seems contradictory. Remember, again, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who are suffering persecution for the sake of the gospel. And not only that, but they see even greater suffering upon the horizon. Martyrdom, no doubt, awaits some of them. And as they're looking at this, there is this great temptation to turn away from this suffering Savior and to turn back to the Jewish faith that they came from, just run back to just that creating sovereign God and away from a suffering Savior because they don't want to suffer. Is he really worth trusting the suffering Savior? Our elders were 
meeting this week, have our session meeting, and we were talking about a suffering Savior and how that has been a stumbling block to many in the history of Christendom, and we were talking in particular about Nietzsche, the 19th century philosopher who believed that Christianity was inherently feminine and weak because it centers upon a suffering Savior, and he found that offensive. But you see, it is through weakness, the weakness of the cross, that God most exemplifies His strength. The Son of God was never shown to be stronger than when He suffered in weakness for us. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to comfort this way. He he wants them to see this, and so what I'm going to do this morning as we walk through this text, he's going to comfort them in two particular ways. One, he is going to show them who this Son of God is. He's going to announce these different titles related to Jesus. You need to know who he is. And then secondly, he's going to tell them, look, you need to know who you are in relation to him. So we're going to go through three titles that he uses to speak of Jesus. This is who he is. And then he's going to relate to us, this is who you are in relation to Jesus. Know who he is, know who you are. And that's the great comfort in the midst of this. And then we'll have just three applications at the end. First, who Jesus is. Notice, Jesus is first the pioneer of our salvation. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The ESV, many of you are using, the Pew Bibles has the word founder. It is actually the Greek word archagon. You can hear an English word coming from that, archagon, architect. He's the author Some of your Bible versions will have that he is the leader. KJV wonderfully says that he is the captain. I think the word that captures it in English the best is he is the pioneer. He is the pioneer of our salvation. He is the first one through, the one that goes before us and he clears the path so that we can go through. Clears what? Clears sin. Clears sin and the guilt of sin that is clouding and blocking our way to the glory of God. The way I think about it in my mind when I think about this passage is I think it's like a jungle. And there are all of these vines in the jungle. And what are all those vines? They are all of that sin original sin and all the actual sins that you and I commit and all the guilt of that sin and all of that, the penalty of that sin, and it's all blocking the way to the glory of God. Christ, by His life, His perfect life lived for sinners, and by His perfect death upon the cross, and by His resurrection from the grave, like a machete cuts through those vines. He clears a path so that he can bring, as the writer of Hebrews says, many sons to glory. He's the pioneer. He 
leads us through. Second, note that Jesus is the perfect Savior. Verse 10, He was made perfect through suffering. Now that'll trip you up as soon as you read that. You say, wait, Jesus, wasn't He already perfect? Did He need something or did He lack something? It it cannot mean that, that somehow Jesus was imperfect in His being. Nothing was added to Him. Nothing was taken from Him. Rather, the meaning here of the writer of Hebrews is that he was made perfect in his role as high priest, as the priest of the people of God. His sufferings in that role set him apart. They made him distinct. They made him set apart holy. He was perfected. As he was tempted and as he was tried through suffering, he realized the requirements of being the perfect sacrifice for sinners. To respond to Nietzsche, the Son of God shows his strength by willingly suffering for the sake of others. He is so strong. He is so strong that he is able to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Was he weak upon the cross? Absolutely. Yes, Christ's death upon the cross is an eternal sign of the great weakness that he adorned himself with, and yet the cross also exemplifies for all of eternity his mighty strength. He was so strong, so strong, that he was able to remain weak on that cross. He was so sovereign that he was willing to give up his own life. He was so in control of his own person and all the other people around the cross and even the angels and the archangels that none were allowed to save him because he knew it was the only way. The only way to save sin. So he endured every temptation. Even the temptations upon the cross. He remained faithful to the very end. He was made perfect through suffering. He is the perfect Savior. Third. We see that Jesus is the perfect man. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who who are sanctified, all have one source. One source meaning that we have the same origin. We have a common humanity. The Son of God became man. Man had to pay the penalty for sin because man had committed the sins. It was ours to pay. And so he became man. And because he became man, we are able to be saved, but more than able, He secures the salvation of those who are His. As the writer of Hebrews says, He sanctifies them. The angels are before the throne of God. We see two great pictures of it in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4 when the angels and the archangels and cherubim and seraphim are before the throne of God. They are crying out and praise to him over and over. And they say one word. I'm going to say it threefold, and then they keep repeating it. What is it? 
holy, 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 holy. Sanctify, set apart. This is what they cry before the throne. When God saves the people to himself in Israel, when he says to them in the Old Testament, when he calls them to himself, there in Leviticus, he will say to them, he will say, I am your God, be holy as I am holy. Why? Because you're my people. You're set apart. Peter will echo this in the New Testament. He will say, be holy as your God is holy, blameless, set apart. Paul will pick this up in Ephesians 1 where we say about our salvation. God chose us in him, meaning Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And we're able to be holy and blameless before him because he is the perfect man who lives in righteousness for us and grants us that righteousness so that we are now set apart for him Forever. And then we pursue holiness. The great pursuit of the Christian. He's the pioneer of our salvation. He's the perfect Savior and He is the perfect man. It's what I want you to see, the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Jewish Christians. You, you need to know who He is. Know who He is because there's comfort in that in the midst of your sufferings. But now let's talk about who you are in relation to Him, because you need to know who you are in relation to Him. I want you to see the names that He uses of those who are saved by Christ just from this text. He's reassuring His recipients. They're all comforting. Who is Christ to us? Who are we now to Him? In verse 10, we are called sons and bringing many sons to glory. Verse 11, we're called Brothers, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Verse 13, we are called children. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Names communicate. They communicate. And he's communicating to us who we are. We're brothers, we're sons, children. First, I want you to note these are words which denote relationship, son and brother. It's bringing many sons to glory. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. If you and I were standing in the hallway before the service this morning and we were introducing ourselves to you and you said, ah, hi, I'm Susie or Fred or John, whatever your name may be, and I say, I'm a son. But there, there's a question you would have to ask then if I said that. We can get away with just introduce our names, but when you say I'm a son, it, it, it requires another question, a son of who? Who are you talking about? It speaks of relationship. If you're a son, you're in relationship. A brother is one who is in relationship. These are terms that speak of belonging. You're in the midst of your suffering, Hebrew Christians. Well, listen, let's remind you of who you are. You are sons and you are brothers. You are in relation. 
But you see, it's not just relationship, it's intimate relationship. In this text, he could have called us servants because that is also true. A Christian is a servant of Christ. But he doesn't use that here. Servant denotes relationship. He wants them to know that it's an intimate relationship. He wants these suffering Christians to know that you, dear Christian, are brought into the very household of God. God is our Father. Christ is our brother. Now this is important. Sons of God, because we're brothers and sisters of Christ. It's God the Son is the eternal begotten Son of God. He has forever been the Son of God. He has never began as the Son of God. He is eternally Generated from the Father, He is forever the Son of God and forever shall be the Son of God. And you and I become children of the Father because we are in the Son. And because we are in the Son, we become adopted children in the Son. And because we have Christ as our brother, we are in the Son, He is our brother. Because He is our brother, then we are children of God. Scriptures are pretty clear. You will hear people talk all the time about, oh, all people are children of God. But the Scriptures don't talk that way. We're all created in the image of God. But as those who are in Christ, because Christ is their brother, that they are children of God. And so he's reminding them, he's reminding us in the midst of everything that you're experiencing in this world, you not only have a relationship, you have an intimate relationship. You have God as your father and you have Christ as your brother. And Listen to what he says about Christ. He says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Of all of your suffering, did you hear those words? He's not ashamed all you brothers. I think when some of us hear that God is Father and Christ is brother, it's not warm feelings that come, and it's because of our experiences with fathers and brothers here that have failed us, they've treated us with disregard or harshly or just dismissed us. But this father and this brother are not like that. love us, they care for us, and they even go so far as to boast of us. Notice that the writer says there is no reluctance on his part. He rejoices to call us brothers. To have an older brother who is not embarrassed by you. Isn't that a wonderful thought? How often we're embarrassed by one another. We're embarrassed of our siblings, usually the younger ones. Often we're embarrassed by our parents. Often we're embarrassed by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because they just aren't, if anyone has a reason to be embarrassed, it is Christ. He says he is not embarrassed to call you brothers and sisters. He will boldly proclaim it to all who are listening, these are my brothers and sisters. It's an intimate relationship. And it leads, these names also denote care. 
Sons are taken care of by their father. Brothers keep one another. See, in the midst of all of the suffering and this persecution that they are experiencing, he's reminding them, look, you belong to the household of faith. You have a sovereign father who created you, and you have a sovereign reigning brother who cares for you. This is what fathers and brothers do. Remember, this is the great sign in Genesis 1 and 2. You have creation of all things. And then in Genesis 3, you have that fateful day where mankind falls and Adam chooses to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3. And then Genesis 4, the great shining picture of the fact that man has fallen from the estate in which God had created him and had fallen from what he was supposed to be and supposed to do is shown in Genesis 4. What happens in Genesis 4? Cain murders Abel. And when God comes to him and says, what have you done? Cain's response is, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, you should have been your brother's keeper. This is what brothers do. Is what fathers do. Care for your family. We're called children in verse 13. Children are watched over. They're cared for. Now why use these names for suffering Christians at this point? Encourage them. <laughs> Encourage you to keep clinging to Christ. Keep clinging to Christ. Are you suffering? Keep clinging to Christ. How? I think three ways we can grab from this text, three applications this morning from these three Old Testament quotes in this passage. First, we rest in the present. Second, we have confidence for tomorrow. And third, we rejoice in the future. So we rest, we have confidence, and we rejoice. First, we rest in the present. Listen, our elder brother is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the good shepherd who cares for his own. He knows his own, and his own know him. Verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is to be a present encouragement and comfort to you that Christ is in the midst of the congregation. He's with us present this morning. Your elder brother in the faith is with us here this morning. This verse, in fact, teaches you that Christ is not only with us this morning, but he is leading us this morning. He's leading us in praise this morning. He is the worship leader this morning. He knows that God is worthy of praise, and he knows that you and I struggle to lift up our voices in praise, and so he is leading us before the throne. When we uh, hired John uh, seven years ago now, uh, we got John from Hawaii, of all places. That's a minor miracle. It's not like miracle on the level of virgin birth, but it's a miracle Hawaii to Michigan. And uh, when we made that coup, uh, and John showed up here, uh, we had to come up with a title for him. 
What do you call him? Uh, you could call him the great piano player, but that doesn't have a ring to it. You could, we thought, well, let's call him the director of music. Can't be a director of worship because that job's already filled here. Christ is the director of worship. We're just simply following him. And he is leading us in this room as we gather week in and week out. He is leading us before the throne of his Father. He is in the midst of the congregation and he is leading us in worship. I often think of Colossians 3 along these lines, you know, where Paul says that we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, that we're to teach and admonish one another as we're singing. We're not only singing with each other, we're singing to one another. We're instructing one another. And this is where my thought goes. Not only is Christ singing with us, he's singing to us this morning. If you have eyes to see and you have ears to hear, Christ is singing to you this morning. And he's reassuring you in the present that you have confidence to come before your Father in heaven. You have reason to give praise. He leads us. There is rest in the present. I love that quote from Richard Sibbs, the old Puritan who said this. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me indeed. He's praying for you and he's singing for you. This morning in the present. Second. You have confidence for tomorrow. Have confidence for tomorrow. The second quote, I will put my trust in him, is a quote from Isaiah. It's taking that quote from Isaiah and putting it in the mouth of Christ. And it is Christ proclaiming his complete and utter dependence upon the Father. He's Looking to the Father in every way. When you and I are looking, and we're often doing this, we're looking for men and women of the faith. We'll do this at that marriage seminar weekend where you're looking at these older couples and looking at how they have navigated marriage and, and gain wisdom from them. When you and I are looking for role models, and we're looking for men and women to sit on our shoulders and instruct us, people that are examples to us of how to live in faith, do you know the great example of faith? The man of faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the man of faith. In the wilderness, he continued to look to his father in faith. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he continued to look to his father in faith. When he was beaten and when he was stripped and when he was whipped. He continued to look to his father in faith. When he hung upon that cross, he continued to look to his father in faith. He's a great man of faith. He teaches you and I what faith is to look like. He, he's the great example before us. This is one of the ways that he cares for us. I grew up in a... Uh, my mom and dad were divorced when I was two, so I grew up without a father in the home, great 
role model for me was my grandfather and the others were Boy Scout leaders. How, how, do, you, how do you become a man? I have no clue, right? I have no clue what it means to be a man. And so it was my grandfather and it was these Boy Scout leaders that were teaching me what it looks like to be a man and raised by a single mom. I remember Boy Scout leader that's very dear to me that kind of took me as an adopted son, Mr. Nagel. And Mr. Nagel, I remember one day uh, giving me a handshake, and it wasn't the best of handshakes that I gave him. And he stopped me and he said, Jason, let's try that again. Man gives a strong handshake. I, I, I don't know how you feel about all this COVID stuff. I think the fist pumps need to go. Handshakes need to come back. Good handshake is a good thing. Uh, and I remember a couple months later, he walked up to me and he reached out his hand. I gave him a handshake and he went, wow, I felt pretty good. So he called over another adult and he said, he said to this other adult man, another Boy Scout leader, he said, come here, come give Jason a handshake. And I gave him a handshake. And the man went, oh, that's a good handshake. And then Mr. Nago called over one of the moms and he said, ah, oh, come give Jason a handshake. And I gripped her hand and I about crushed it. And that was the second lesson. He said, now, Jason, you treat women gently. You have no clue what it meant to be a man. You have no clue what it means to be a man or woman of faith. Apart from looking to Jesus. No clue. He's the great example. You follow him. You're constantly looking to him. In this way, he cares for us. He's a model before us in the great path through suffering. Are you struggling with temptation? All his life, let alone in the wilderness, so did he. Do you dread tomorrow? In the Garden of Gethsemane, so did he. You feel like you're surrounded by enemies on every side, at the very least, at his trial and at the cross, so did he. You feel like you are without hope in the world. Cross, so did he. He kept looking to his father. It's your great example. You see, in all those sufferings, though, through which he was made perfect, he suffered also not like you and me, as our sufferings are but a raindrop in the ocean of his suffering. What did he do in the midst of all of that? He continued to look to his father. That's your elder brother. You have reason to have confidence for tomorrow. Finally, you rejoice in the future. The third quote, Behold, I and the children God has given me. It's another quote from Isaiah. But again, the words are placed in the mouth of Christ. God has given us to Christ. So no matter what happens in this world, no matter what enemies you're surrounded by, no matter what trials and sufferings you're enduring, he's giving this reminder that, look, you have been given to Christ. God the Father has given you to Him. 
Now listen, every single one of us in this room has a future. You all have a future. But those who are in Christ Jesus have a glorious future and it is assured. It can't be taken away because you're in Him. You've been given to Him. So in many ways, you and I as Christians, we could quote Franklin Delano Roosevelt in that first inauguration where he said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. You have nothing to fear. You're in Him. He has you. You've been given to Him. He can't let go of that. The future's guaranteed. He brings many sons to glory. This is the end. Glory is on the horizon and we are but pilgrims growing through this world and we will reach the horizon. He went before us. He's the trailblazer. He's the one that went before us as a pioneer and he cares for us and he brings many sons to glory. If you've ever been in a foreign country, Uganda, China, California, just somewhere strange, and uh, you land in that strange place and you arrive there and you're a little bit anxious, you don't know quite where to go or how to get there, but then someone shows up who knows you and knows where you're going and knows how to get there, and then all of a sudden there's just a kind of peace that descends upon you. They know me, and they know where I'm going, and they know how to get there. Jesus knows you. He knows where you're going and he knows how to get there. He came down from heaven and he brings the many sons to glory. There is a pioneer. The son of God came down from heaven to earth that he might make us sons of God and bring us up from earth to heaven. It's worthy of your trust. I love reading church history my great passions, I'm working my way through a book again for a second or third time. It's a book that every Christian in previous centuries that was literate read. There were three books that almost every Christian that was literate in the Western world read. The Bible, Pilgrim's Progress, and Fox's Book of Martyrs. I'm reading through Fox's Book of Martyrs again and it's amazing to me how often in Fox's Book of Martyrs, let alone throughout the rest of church history, when a Christian is facing severe persecution and even when they are facing martyrdom, that there is just this peace that is over them. And it is onlookers observing this Christian dying in peace that many are brought to saving faith. My favorites is Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was the Bishop of Smyrna. And Polycarp will be arrested and he will be taken by the Romans into the Colosseum. And there he will be threatened with wild beasts and threatened with fire and being put to death. And he will be martyred there. There's this great moment where the proconsul is before Polycarp. And Polycarp is an old man. 
And he says to Polycarp, all you have to do is forsake Christ and bow down and worship the Caesar. Polycarp in this great moment says some of my favorite words from church history. He says, 86 years I have served him, meaning Christ. 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my Christ, my King and my Savior? He's done me no wrong. Polycarp, you're out of your everlasting 86-year-old mind. You're standing in a coliseum. You're about ready to be put to death by this Christ and King and Savior. Done you no wrong. Polycarp understood. (laughs) Understood what the apostle will say for this slight momentary affliction. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He could say it not only with a straight face, but with complete and utter conviction. He has done me no wrong. None. Seventeenth-century Puritan John Geary said this about his life. He said, "My captain is Christ. My weapons are prayers and tears. My banner is the cross. My motto is Vincent qui patitur, meaning He who suffers is victorious." As Peter will say, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. He has done us no wrong. He leads the way and we follow. The cross, then the crown. He has pioneered the path. And when we ascend to the world above, There is not a moment of suffering endured in this world that will be regretted. Not a moment. All of the pains that you are enduring in this life will be but badges there. Every loss gained there. Every wound, whether physical or mental or emotional, we endure for the gospel here will be a treasured scar there. All our present sufferings simply make heaven more beautiful. He has done us no wrong. So the writer is saying to you, and he's saying to these Jewish Christians, you keep clinging to him. No matter what your sufferings are, No matter how hard this life has gotten, you keep clinging to the sovereign, creating God who is also the suffering Savior. There's nowhere He shows His strength more. And He's shown it for you. He's worthy. He's worthy to cling to. Let's pray.
Father, I do exalt you this morning. Thankful that you are a God who reigns supreme. That you have a son who sits enthroned above. Who has suffered the the worst this world has to bring to bear. And who is now wearing a crown in glory. Thankful that even this morning he is in our midst. We hold fast to him even as he holds fast to us. Keep us, we pray. May you receive the glory and the praise. In Christ's name, amen.